0: The first portion is from Exodus, chapter 34, 5 through 14. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness. "'Rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. "'He punishes the children and their children "'for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. "'Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. "'Lord,' he said, "'if I have found favor in your eyes, "'then let the Lord go with us. "'Although this is a stiff-necked people, "'forgive our wickedness and our sin.'" And take us as your inheritance. And then the Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, or however, the Hittites and the Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is jealous is a jealous God. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of our God
1: forever.
0: And now from James chapter 4, 1 through 12. Submit yourselves to God. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, a battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You <laughs> covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You you adulterous people, don't you know what that friendship with the world means? enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes... And there's a blank there, so I don't know (laughs) missed that one. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he is jealous, long for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace, and that is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them that speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge your law, you're not keeping it. But sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? The word of the Lord.
1: Anyone who chooses to be. A friend of the world becomes an enemy of God, and now you know the rest of the story. I don't know what happened with the printing. Let's pray. Father, I'm instructed by some old Puritan prayer by a fellow whose name I don't know. He said, I am desired to preach today, but go weak and needy to the task. I feel the reverberations of that in my soul, not just today, but every Sunday. But I've I've asked for your help for these people that you adore, that you're jealous for, that you can't give up on. I've asked that you would furnish them with gracious speech that would nourish their faith, that would enlarge their trust, that would move their hearts into worship and obedience and joy, and so I'm counting on you to do what I have asked, and I ask you again, please come. Will you help this week our youth as they go to beach trips? Will you let the gospel of our Lord, his welcoming mercies, and the movement of the Spirit be large and evidenced in their lives? Would you help them to love as we ask you to help us the right things and to hate those things which you hate and draw them and us ever more near to you now. Come, Holy Spirit, we invite you. Come. Amen. Last summer sometime I was reading a blog post from Mike Mason. And Mike Mason, you need to know, wrote, I think the best book on marriage that exists which no one has read. Well, surely people have read it. It's gotten republished 30 years later, and it won a Christian medallion, something or another, when it was published back in 1990. And it was written by a Canadian, which apparently Canadians know things about marriage. And he was about 30 when he wrote it, which should have instantaneously disqualified him from saying anything about marriage. And he had been married about five minutes which should have disqualified him more, but his insight is vast. And I find myself going back and thinking about things he says quite a bit. Well, he wrote this blog post that said, how to quit fighting with your spouse. And I thought, okay, Mike Mason, you're going for the clickbait thing, huh? This is kind of like how to lose 100 pounds by closing your your eyes real tight for 30 seconds. How to instantaneously make $100,000 a month by working at home by looking at picture books. It's something like that, right? You want us to click. So you're saying how to quit fighting with your spouse as if this were a, a permanent arrangement that could be set up. So I Clicked. Mike Mason. He's no charlatan. He wanted to be a monk at one point. He's the most literary Christian writer I've read in most of those christian books. And so I thought, he can't be just trying to trick me. So what is he up to, Mike Mason? Well, he goes on to describe how he realized something. And it coalesces with a lot of what James is up to today in this passage where he says, What causes quarrels and fights? among you. One, he assumes that in a church, the churches to whom he's writing, that there are quarrels and fights. There's contention, there's backbiting, there's disappointment, there's aggravation, there's accusation, there's slander. So he's just writing to people like us. And Mike Mason says, I realized something when I inspected what was going on in me in the middle of a fight. I think I can remember it about a 2 a.m. fight, which is the first sign of something bad happening. You shouldn't fight at 2 a.m. Not, there's nothing nothing productive's going to happen. But this idea of watching my wife talk, he said, and realizing that here I was, merely thinking of the next thing I could say that would put down the point she just made. I was just trying to win. And it occurred to me, I could just stop. I didn't have to win. And so in this five-part series, one of the things that he comes up with, he said, is for us to have quit fighting. We don't fight anymore. That's what he said. We don't fight anymore. Mike Mason knows if he's telling the truth or not. But he said the way that we got to where we don't fight anymore is that I had to decide that I am the cause of all our arguments. See? People laugh like I'm making a guy joke and a girl joke. Maybe it's that. But he was coming up with the same kind of thing that James is wanting to come up with today. What causes fights and quarrels from among you? Mike Mason said, I realized in every fight there's something in me That perpetuates the fight. That perpetuates the quarrel. That perpetuates, that continues to fuel the fire of this disagreement or this argument. Whether it's a slight one or whether it's a raging one. And James says the same thing. It's you. What causes quarrels and fights from among you? If you ask that question. If in the middle of your next quarrel with your brother, or your sister, or your mama, or your next door neighbor, or your buddy, or your boss, or your spouse. If you were to pause, or after the fact, you were to pause at some sane moment when you can think right. And you say, what causes this quarrel? What what was going on? Your indigenous answer, the native Response, like breathing, will be something like this. The reason we fight is because my husband is a bonehead. The reason I can't get on well with my siblings is because she is impossible. The reason that the country is going down the tubes is because of the Democrats. If there was not some impulse to look outward, solely outward, for the cause of our disagreements and our getting cattywampus with others, Fox News would not exist. Cable news would not exist. It depends on this ethic of making sure that you're innocent and the other party is completely, entirely, and comprehensively wrong. Our whole news system works according to that. But James would say, don't listen to your indigenous answer. Don't listen to the automated knee-jerk of your own life. Ask this question. What causes fights and quarrels from among you? And if you really look at it, you'll find this. When you inspect, what is the fuel for your fights? You'll find this. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. Isn't that way more the case, he would say, when you're quarreling? When you're in an argument? If you were able to sort of call time out and step aside and look and say, what is it right now that I want, that I'm not getting? You come closer to being able to end the argument, to finding a solution to the argument, than you would if you continue to think the problem is that other person, how ridiculous they are, how selfish they are, how angry they are, how crude they are, how delicate they are, how self-absorbed they are. If you would pause and say, what is it that I'm not getting? I am desiring something, but I'm not getting it. What is it? This week, Kathy and I had, I think, our fourth argument in about 30 years. Third, third argument. Third argument. That's a joke. <laughs> no, but I realize when we have tiffs, quarrels of sorts, I realize something in me. When I ask the question, I don't realize this on the spot, and I have a heinous lack like of self-control. When I'm trying to perpetuate an argument, which doesn't feel like I'm trying to perpetuate an argument, it just feels to me like I'm trying to make sure I'm saying the record straight. Because there's been a colossal misunderstanding. I am being misinterpreted. I am being misunderstood. And so the very most important thing in the entire universe is to make sure that my children know and that Kathy knows and that all the humans know that I understand rightly and no one else does. And so I must help them. And it makes me angry if they don't get it, so I have to keep on. But you see, that's my issue, not theirs. But it could very easily feel to them like it's I'm saying it's their issue, and of course, in the heat of the moment I kind of think it is. But it's my issue. And I'm betraying in that very moment when I'm demanding that I be understood. I demand it. I demand that I be rightly interpreted. I'm betraying my whole theology because I know, I know, I've taught, I believe, I witness, I experience that in normal circumstances, Jesus is right. Why do you look at the microscopic little speck of sawdust that's gotten in your brother's eye when you've got a honking telephone pole shooting out of your own? Take that telephone pole to the sawmill, get it shaved down and out. Then you can see clearly to see the little minuscule microscopic speck that's going on with them you got big stuff going on in you. I know this. We're the last people to know about ourselves. You know this? We're the last people to know. There are people all around you who know everything about you, and you think they know nothing about you because you think you know yourself the best. But how is it that ten people who know you all know this same thing about you that you're completely blind to? Well, that dynamic holds for everybody except for me. Thank you. We had one boy, a a college-age student, who understood the sarcasm there. Just kidding. But it's very important to realize, well, what if what I'm demanding right now, it feels like I'm just fighting for what's true and for what's right. But really all I'm doing is just defending myself. I'm really just making sure that I'm perceived correctly. I'm really just acting out of this sense that I am solely the correct arbiter of truth for myself and nobody else knows anything about it. You know, you've maybe had the experience before where someone says to you, why are you so angry? You say, I'm not angry! And your carotid arteries are bulging and your face is beet red and your blood pressure is dangerously high and you're screaming at a decimal where people are having to like cower with earplugs. And you're saying, I'm not angry! Hmm. well, you don't know yourself very well. I don't either. But the people around you do, and they see things about you you don't see about yourself. Including the kale that gets in your teeth while you're eating. But you don't know. And so James said, inspect the fuel for your fights. Every time you get in a fight, every time you have a quarrel, every time you have an issue with somebody, every time you find yourself slandering somebody else or gossiping about somebody else or or mad about somebody else, it's really highly possible that there's something in you that's being unmet. There's something you want that you're not getting. And the trick is to figure out, what is that? And why should I be blaming them for it? It may be that you you want to be understood. It may be that you want to be respected. It may be that you want to be cherished and adored. It may be that you want to be taken more fully into account. It may be simply that you want the things that they have. You want their life somehow. You want their executive-styled hair. You want their job. You want their life. You want their their kids, because their kids are better than yours. Their life seems better than yours. And so you want that. James would say if you want to figure out how to stop fighting like Mike Mason did, one of the things you'll discover is that you're the cause of all your fights. A great number of them, at least the perpetuation of them. That doesn't mean the person you're dealing with is not obnoxious. Kathy deals with somebody obnoxious all the time. That doesn't mean you're not dealing with somebody who isn't impossible. They might be impossible, but the perpetuation depends on the fuel. And some of the fuel is you not having met Some need that you want. What is it? And then he says, here's a remedy. So inspect the fuel for your fights, find out that you're the cause. And then here's a remedy the remedy of asking God to fulfill your deficits. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James is cute, isn't he? So so simple. He thinks that God would matter to some problem that you're having. Now, we're way more sophisticated than that. We know good and well that science has disproven that God can help people. Or has proven that he can't. But James wants to keep insisting it. And those of you who have been people of prayer who have learned to repair to God when something deeply unright within you, you know that he's right too. He says you don't have because you don't ask God. And the things you do ask God about and don't receive, it's because you're, you're asking with the wrong kind of intention. You're interested in gaining stuff that you might spend purely on your own pleasure which would be for your own ruin. It's worth asking. Are there things that right now you're looking to other people in your life to give to you, in fact, demanding that they give to you, and they keep not giving it to you, and so you keep being angry with them? or you keep quarreling with them, or you keep being disappointed with them, or you keep being disgusted with them, or you keep talking bad about them because they keep not coming through for you. Is there, do you have any situations like that? I've heard some of you talk. I think you do. And James would say, well, how about asking God for that thing that you think you need? Hmm. There are a lot of us that go around We don't realize this. We don't realize this until we're hurt or until we're mad, until we're sullen or until we're discouraged. We go around and the people around us are in the middle of an AP exam called How Well Do You Love Me. They're they're in the middle of an exam and it never ends. All the people around us are in that exam, but they don't know. That's the trick. They don't even have a pencil, but they're on trial. And the question is always, are they loving me enough? Are they respecting me enough? Are they encouraging me enough? Are they thinking of me enough? That is the question that we're demanding of people, some of us, some of the times, most of us at some time. And the other people around us don't even know that that's the test they're under. And we don't even know that's the test they're under until they fail it, and then we realize because we're so hurt. It's hard. That's what's hard about relationships. We do need things from people. We want things from people. We have a right to expect Love from people who are called to love us. So it's difficult. But here's what I can guarantee. And this is what James is guaranteeing. He does not say you want something, you don't have it. So keep demanding more of the people around you. He says, ask God. Like he actually thinks that might matter. I found it mattering. I hope you sometimes find it mattering. Leanne Payne is a big help to me, my favorite Reformed Episcopalian charismatic professor. I don't. She wasn't in the PCA. And she's no longer living, and she talked about how at the beginning of her Christian life, what turned the corner for her, what helped spur her growth on, was that she came to accept herself as Christ has accepted her. That when Christians don't accept themselves, they can't grow anymore. They can't grow. If you don't accept yourself, you're riveted on yourself. You're engrossed with yourself. You're thinking all the time, how am I doing? How's my body? Have I measured up? Do I have enough? Am I enough? You're constantly thinking about yourself. You're riveted on yourself. You're obsessed with yourself. Until you can come to believe that Christ has accepted you and you can accept yourself. You don't have to think about yourself all the time. You don't have to be the issue all the time. And she said, The way that I started to work this out in my faith is that I would go to God, like James said. And I would say, Oh Lord, I need to hear the affirming word that the Father is always speaking. In other words, she came with this sense of how unaffirmed she was. She was a divorced mother, no husband. How unaffirmed, how insecure. How many things didn't seem right. And so she thought, if I go to God, the one who gives orders to the morning, he might be able, in the same way that he spoke over Jesus and said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He might be able to say that same thing to me. He might be able to heal some deep, diseased, poisonous way of thinking in myself that makes me hate myself. Because a lot of people who haven't accepted themselves hate themselves. Which is very unchristian. Because why should you hate the one that God loves? How can you be angry at the one that God adores? Well, you just haven't let it seep into the cracks of your person. Down into the core of who you are. And so she would lay open her life to God in these times of prayer. I'm trying to do this myself. and journaling, trying to listen to God, saying, Lord, I'm looking. I need people to affirm me. I want people to love me. I want people to think I'm the greatest. You've heard me say this before. This is my veiled way of getting you to tell me. Just kidding. But I need this. And I thought, you know what? I need God to give me this. So I'm trying to ask God. It's hard to do. It's hard to trust. It's hard to wait. But my, oh my, there are things that you need, things that you want, things that you crave, That you think you must have. Go to God with them. Ask him. Is his love true? Is it better? Than anything you can imagine? The Bible says it is. Remedy when you discover the fuel of your fighting is your own wants. I'm the cause of my fights. Remedy it with asking God, affirm me, heal me, love me, resource me because I'm empty. Give me what I don't have. I need a better car. I need a different job. Or I need a new attitude for the present job I've got or for the present car I've got. And then James says, so you don't have because you don't ask God. And then he gives us a little ad hoc excursus on Some kinds of unanswered prayer. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I don't think this is meant to make you a nervous wreck about asking God for things and thinking, well, maybe I'm just being selfish because I'm asking for something for myself. James goes on to talk about friendship with the world and God's immense jealousy. Which jealousy is always a healthy aspect of love. And so I think another way of saying what James is saying here is, do not imagine that you can start to make God your servant to do your bidding. Do not imagine that God merely exists to fulfill your urgent request that you win the Powerball this week. Have you seen how big it is, Lord? Do you know how this would change my life do you know what kind of praise i would give you if i could win this powerball how generous i would become and god might say as he has said to all the people i know who might have prayed that i don't know if anybody's prayed that here i bet somebody's prayed that here but to all the people i know if they've prayed that god has said no you will not win the powerball because besides the fact that it's a terrible thing to people and the government shouldn't be doing it. Secondly, did you hear what I did there? <laughs> secondly, why would I want to destroy you? Haven't you read the statistics? What happens to people who win the Powerball? Their life is destroyed. It's strangled. They suddenly have millions of friends and relatives who need new transmissions and rent payments. And within a short amount of time, they're broke and destroyed and friendless and miserable. And I know you'd be the exception, but I'm not going to let you try. I do not like to give my children rope with which to hang themselves. So I'm not going to let you win a Powerball. I think that's part of what he's after here. There are certain kinds of answers to prayer. A married person who says, Lord, please let me find another woman. Give me a mistress. God's like, no! Do you understand how this works? He's not going to help you destroy your life. He's not going to help you destroy another person. He's not going to help you live for pleasure, which Paul says, a widow who lives for pleasure is already dead. And you're only living for your own little base wants. You're destroyed, and God's not going to help you destroy yourself. He's jealous for you. He wants you. He loves you. So no, he's not going to help you figure out a way to cheat on your test. So don't ask him. He doesn't want you to be destroyed. But he does want you to ask. What do you need? Figure out the fuel for your fights. Figure out that's you, who's the cause of so many of them. And then remedy this, what do I want with asking god he says and lastly this be ambitious for the right kind of friendship you adulterous people this is another part of james's cuteness he'd really do well on tv calling his audience adulteresses it's so sweet it's very affirming Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God? Or do you think scripture says, without reason, that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That's why the proverb says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When you're asking yourself, why are we fighting? It's also ask, it's worth asking yourself sometimes in the middle of your life's discontent. Instead of just assuming that the unwellness in your own mind and in your heart could be solved by more consumer goods or by a bigger bank account or a bigger salary or better relationships or something like that. James would say, well, check your ambition about who are you trying to be friends with? Because you have a choice. You have a choice. You can be friends with God. Abraham trusted God, he believed him as someone able to do what he had promised he would do. He trusted him so much that he acted on that, and his actions and his faith waltzed beautifully together. And he was called the friend of God, says James two chapters previous. Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants as he says to us. but Because service, they don't know what their master's up to. They just blindly follow orders. But you I call friends. I've taken the Father's intentions and I'm making them known to you and we're now co-laboring together. I'm dignifying your life. You get to represent me in my affairs. You get to serve as an ambassador. You get to serve as an anguish alleviator in conjunction with me. You get to have reason for being. You get access to me. We're friends. Or you can, you can choose an alliance with the world. And the Bible has conf- you know, and the, sometimes the Bible says, don't love the world or anything in the world. And sometimes the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then you think, well, so which is it, young fella? Are we supposed to hate the world or are we supposed to love the world? Yes, that's the answer, yes. Because it uses the world in different ways. When it says hate the world, or it says don't be friends with the world, it's talking about this system. This system of human endeavor and action. that's anti-God. That scrubs him out of the equation. That erases him from our cognition and from our consideration. That says we will exist and live and act as if he's not there. And so friendship there allies to that way of thinking. It it embraces a whole set of values that says things like, well, life is short, so the most important thing is being fulfilled ever how you want. You need to get skinnier, tanner. You need to have cool vacations. Your life needs to look good online. If you failed, maybe your kids can be better than you. Or you could be a friend of God who can tell you who you are, who can supply what you need. And when you realize you don't have it and you've not lived up to it, He gives you more gifts because He gives grace to the humble. This summer, I've realized I've been frustrated. I've been frustrated with travel baseball, which is interesting for me because I love baseball. But I realize why I've been frustrated with travel baseball. And it's been analogous to me of what James is talking about here. You see, travel baseball, travel soccer, travel gymnastics, any travel sport now, I've misunderstood the nature of it. And so I've become frustrated by it. I've, un- I've understood wrongly that what it says is this I demand all. I want your children in totality, I want your paycheck in totality. I want all your time and all your waking thoughts, I want you to be nimble and prepared to respond at a moment's notice to vast schedule changes in other cities. I want you to live in other cities, whichever ones we decide from time to time, never the same. And so I had thought as we entered into this that this was an appendage to our lives, Because we like our kids. We want them to do the things they like. And so the whole time I've been thinking, well, I have a life here. We have a life here. Like we're trying to love the people here. I have a a calling as a pastor here and as a dad here and a friend and a husband and a son and all of that here. And then baseball says, I summon you. I summon you to show up for this weekend tournament on Thursday at 4.30 a.m. And I'm thinking, 4.30 a.m.? Not really, but that's what it feels like. Thursday? When is Thursday part of the weekend now? Well, it's not, but it'll go to Monday. That's not the weekend! And see, I keep being frustrated because I kept thinking that this was just like part of what we were doing, but it's actually asking me for everything. And so I'm constantly divided. When I'm there, I'm feeling frustrated at how I'm going to manage here. And when I'm here, I know I've got that, and I'm divided. And see, Christ says the same thing, and the world says the same thing. There's there's a competition for all of your allegiance. And if you're trying to straddle with Jesus, like, Jesus, you can have this part of me, but I want to live another part of me out here like this. I heard a news report this week that said, Many Catholics now are deciding they would like to choose how they live their faith on their own. And I was like, well, whatever that is, it's not Catholicism. You can't do that. That's not Christianity, to decide how to live it on your own. The whole premise is that Jesus Christ is the Lord, and he'll tell you how to live. If you choose it some other way, that's not it. It's something different. And here's what's amazing, though. So you can't have both ways. You've got to pick. That's what James is urging you to do. He's urging you to pick. He's saying, go be friends with God. Be ambitious to be friends with God. Let your need move you to friendship with God because he's offering you things. A way to be in the world, but not of it. A way to operate there, but not to be stained by it. And what an amazing friendship. Because when you've been an adulteress, When you've looked for what God would provide everywhere else, James says, here's what you can do, adulterous people. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Submit to him and resist the devil and the devil will flee from you. Take this seriously. Grieve and mourn and wail. Throw away your double-mindedness. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. In these days of my failure, which I just feel like I fail all the time. In terms of righteousness, in terms of vocation, fathering, husbanding. The very most relieving doctrine of the Christian life is this idea that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. This reassurance... That you could be someone who quarrels and fights, who's mean as a snake sometimes. And you could come to God and say, I'm sorry, I quarrel and I fight and I'm mean as a snake sometimes. And he gives cleansing and welcome. And he stands at the right hand of the one who is needy. Our professor Steve Brown used to say, if you see a turtle on a fence post you know he did not get there by himself. Ponder it. Turtles have no vertical leap. And they cannot climb. But they can enjoy a new view if someone should lift them up and place them higher than they would be traveling on their own. Would you be ambitious for friendship with God? Who gives grace. Grace that will move you, grace that will fortify you, grace. These gifts that will say, you haven't been enough. But Jesus has. And you're accepted. So you can accept yourself. And you've got a plenteous supply of resource. So keep coming back to them. If you understand Christianity, grace will seem very, very sweet. And if it doesn't, ask God for that. Ask him. Amen.